Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, and we'll be looking at John chapter 4, and most of the verses, I'll skip some along the way, there's um, more than enough material in this story to keep you thinking for quite some time. I will say now that some of the some of the work I did on this passage came from Bema, as you've heard me say before, I need to keep making sure you know that most of the very interesting things that I have in my mind come from somebody else, so I just want to make that clear, and then as I pass them on to you. So hear this story and, and listen to it, and feel free to wonder along the way, why did he say that? Why did she say that? Because if you don't ever bump into the fact that this story is a little strange and takes some funny turns, you're not listening hard enough, all right? So look for those things, please, as I read. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And when a Samaritan woman... Jacob's well was there. Where am I? Yep, thank you. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would, given you, he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, also as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go back and go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And many of the Samaritans came um, from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They 
said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Hospitality, Jesus style. So for the next three weeks, including today, myself today, Pastor Brady next week, and Pastor Jolene the third week, are each going to take a story of Jesus interacting with some people and show you some of his caring encounters, which is our our theme for this series, right? And see Jesus in action, his kind of hospitality. And again, as we do this, you're going to see that Jesus is one who has real conversations with people, deep conversations, challenging conversations with people, and holds on to them. He is our model. He's our example. We will be following him. As, as we're doing this, we're going to be paying attention to the fact that he's dealing with difference. And I, I take that language from Dr. Morgan Braganza. Um, I think I introduced the series by saying we took this title, Caring Encounters, from her um, PhD thesis. She's actually our presenter next weekend at our leadership retreat, um, and she will help us continue to do or continue to practice what we're trying to do here, which is figure out how do I take people who think differently, act differently, look differently from me, right, have meaningful conversations with them, and keep on hanging on. So as we look at Jesus, I want you to notice first that Jesus actually walks toward difference, all right? Our natural tendency, I think most of us can admit, is if there's some tension somewhere, we're thinking, how about I go over there where there's no tension, right? It's a natural response. But there are important times when we are called to do so, to actually step into conversation and have, the, um, have that meaningful conversation, even when there is difference and tension. So look at what Jesus does. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Now, I don't know who was counting and who was trying to keep score. Um, they point out that Jesus doesn't actually do the baptism, but his disciples. But what does Jesus do? He's down in Judea, and if you know your, your biblical geography, Judea's down here, Samaria's in the middle, right? And up here is Galilee, where Jesus came from. And Galilee is the home of the Pharisees, by the way. That's where you go for Pharisees. So Jesus is way down in the south, and he hears that the Pharisees are talking about him. Does he say, oh, good, lucky for me, I'm in the south, I don't have to talk to them? He says, no, I'm going to go back to the north. And on his way, as it says, now we had to go through Samaria. And if you were listening along in the story, if you've heard about the Samaritans before, there is this rift between Jewish people and Samaritans, even though they're all part of Israel, right? There's this rift between them that was as tense as any kind of discrepancy you can possibly imagine, all right? Now, it says he had to go through Samaria. Most Jewish people at that time just simply would have gone all the way around. They would have crossed the Jordan River twice in order to get away from this. They would have gone through Philistia, if it was still called that at that time. They would have avoided going through Samaria no matter what. That's how strong this passion, this dislike, this hatred really was. Jesus, on his way to face the Pharisees in Galilee, goes right through Samaria, and we're going to see what happens as he does so. Can you back me up? Sorry. Thank you. 
Imagine a historic site plaque. Do you ever drive down the road and you see those, if you're in the States, they're blue signs, and why do I not know what color they are in Ontario? I live here. Probably blue as well. And, you know, it's historic plaque over here. And sometimes you, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you stop and you read it and you find out something fascinating or you think, why did they put a historic plaque there? This place that's being talked about here in our day and age, maybe it does even now, would have a historic site plaque on it. Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and in the Old Testament it was actually called Shechem. You may have heard of that one. Near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And if you don't know that, Jacob was the one after whom Israel got its name. His other name was Israel, if you will. So clearly an important figure, right? This is the George Washington of Israel, if you will. So he came to the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Joseph, they weren't probably supposed to play favorites, but Joseph was his favorite son. Right? And Jacob's well was there. All this is vital information because Jesus, it seems, never just simply went somewhere because it was on his way and it was in his way. Whenever he spoke, and when, especially when the Bible points it out, there's a reason that thing is being pointed out because it's really vital to the story. We'll find that out in a couple of minutes. And he engages by asking for help. As we think about hospitality, I want to remind you what I was recently reminded of in, in a wonderful article that... The best way to learn about hospitality is not by hosting people, but by being hosted. Notice how many times when Jesus is on a journey and he's meeting with people, probably because he didn't have a home, he would actually have other people host him. Right? So the light of the world, the one who had everything to offer everyone, said, how about you care for me? He said to Zacchaeus, how about I come to your house today? Right? He allowed others to host him. I highly encourage you that when you have the opportunity, let people bless you and take care of you and pay attention to what that feels like. It's part of the Jesus way of hospitality. So he asked her for a drink, and she says right away, wait a minute, I'm a Samaritan woman, and you're a Jewish man. What in the world are you asking me a drink for? Because a Jewish man would not even touch a cup or anything else that was given to him by a Samaritan woman. The tension was that strong. Jesus steps above that difference, above that tension, and he wants to talk about something a bit bigger. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, say you're in a conversation with somebody who doesn't know about Jesus yet, and you somehow get to the place, and it's not too hard to imagine, where they ask you, or where you ask them for a drink of water, would your next line be, you know, we should really talk about living water. Imagine that conversation going on. What would the other person, what would their face look like? What would they say? They would say, what are you talking about? Right? Keep that in mind in this story, because Jesus, and the woman as far as I'm concerned, make these leaps in the conversation that either mean we actually missed half the conversation and John was a horrible writer and he missed all kinds of stuff, which is not true, by the way. He was an amazing writer. Or... We might be missing something. We've got to pay a little closer attention to find out what in the world's going on in this story. He starts talking about living water. He assumes she knows about living water. So first, know the text. Let me pause here a sec before I move on. When you think of the Samaritan woman at the well, the character in this story, what kind of a person is she in your mind? Is she somebody you would hold in high regard? Is she somebody who has a lot of need? Is she a broken person? 
Is she a strong person and a leader? Just hang on to that thought because we're going to deal with that in a minute. I just want you to pick up on your own natural reaction right there. So, first thing you need to know when you hear something like living water is if Jesus just pops that into a conversation, there's probably something that people know about living water, right? So, Zechariah 14, verse 8. On that day, so this is the great day of the Lord he's talking about, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea, half it to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea, and it'll happen in summer and winter. All right? So there's a apocalyptic message of Zechariah, and apocalyptic simply means this. When we're in times of stress and difficulty, apocalyptic literature are images of hope that help us hang on towards the future. And Zechariah was writing apocalyptic literature. This is an image of hope. So he's saying what's going to happen is someday Jerusalem is going to be so full of water, and water is an incredibly important commodity in Israel, by the way, right? It's a very dry country for the most part. One of these days, there's going to be so much water in Jerusalem that it's actually going to flow out from Jerusalem all the way to the sea on one side and to the water on the other side. It's going to go everywhere. There's going to be so much abundance. That's an image of hope, right? Clearly, when Jesus says to this woman, if you'd asked me, I would have given you living water, he's assuming she has some knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, I don't know what you've heard about Samaritans, but I always thought that Samaritans were people who kind of gave up on most of what the um, other Israelites had been taught. We're going to hear later that they worship on one mountain and the Jewish people worshiped on um, Mount, the Mount of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But the Samaritans were actually people who were incredibly faithful to the five books of Moses, to the Torah, right? They were a highly conservative group, if you will. They hung on very fast to those teachings, to those beliefs, and so knowing what Zechariah said would actually be second nature to them. I'm guessing if I had you show your hands, this would be easy. How many of you knew that living water showed up in Zechariah 14? See, it's easy when you don't have to put up your hands. Because most of us don't know those kinds of things. Jewish people knew those kinds of things, and Samaritans knew those kinds of things. So when Jesus says living water, she's going, I think I know what he's talking about. It's an image from the Old Testament. Not only know the text, but we need to know the tradition. One of the challenges of us reading the Bible is we are Western people, and we don't even, we don't know um, Jewish lifestyle, but we also don't know their secondary teachings, all right? So Um, Old Testament Jewish people and present-day Jewish people, they not only have the Bible, the Old Testament as we would call it, they also have the Talmud and they have have, uh, Midrash and they have all kinds of extra teachings. And most of them actually know a lot about what's in those teachings. And one of the teachings in there is that this well of Jacob, whenever Jacob showed up there, it would just start overflowing. So when Jacob came to Jacob's well, he didn't need a pail or a bucket or a rope. Because when he got there, just like we saw in that image of Jerusalem, the water just started coming out of that well and overflowing, so he'd just go there and drink right out of the well. It's coming up right where he needed it. So the woman says, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living? Are you greater than Jacob? Right? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's having this great conversation with her, leading her right to the conversation he wants to have. And we're all thinking, this is really mysterious. How does he make all these leaps? He's actually just pointing out things she already knows because she lives there. She knows this is Jacob's well. She knows what was great. She probably knows the story of it overflowing. She's ready to hear about the living water that's present to her in that moment. 
Does this woman understand? I think I gave that away already. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Right? Again, in your conversation with somebody, if you give them a glass of water, do you ever say is your next line, you know what, I actually got some water that if you drink it, you're not going to thirst again. No, Jesus is leading her into a very particular conversation that connects with Zechariah and other Old Testament truths. And it seems like this is working, seems like success. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So what's the next line? What would be the right thing for Jesus to say? Bless you, my daughter. Thank you for having asked. Here you go. Would seem to be the normal thing, right? If I'm encouraging somebody to put their trust in Christ, and they say to me, I'd like to put my trust in Christ, I pray for them. Seems like the logical thing to do. What does Jesus do? Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Now, I've often thought and still wonder, was Jesus thinking here? She's got some brokenness in her life. I need to, I need to poke at that. I need to unwrap that. I need to have an honest conversation with about that. I need to do some healing with that. Could be. That's a decent and fine understanding. There might be another one, and I want to look at that one. Why five? Seems like a simple question because it's in the text. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is quite true. So is it that Jesus needs to deal with the fact that this woman has gone through five husbands and perhaps given up on marriage? Think context, though. I think we've talked about this before. A Samaritan woman, a Jewish woman, an Eastern woman has no right to divorce anybody. If she was to be divorced, her husband would write the thing of divorce. This is not a shame on her because she probably had no say in this process, right? So someone has suggested, my Bama friends, or one of their friends, why five? At Evergreen Terrace this past week, I did a Bible study, and we talked about numbers. And the number five is huge in Old Testament thinking. It's the number of the five books of Moses. And as I told you, the Samaritans were the people who were deeply engaged in the five books of Moses. right? And so this may simply be the woman's story, but it also might be a symbol, because Jesus had an amazing way of doing that, of saying, you know what, you were married to the five books of Moses, but right now you're kind of out on your own without any grounding in what God has taught. And if you think about his, his conversation in a minute, about where you worship, about who the Jews are and who the Samaritans are, and that salvation comes through Jesus who was in the Jewish camp, maybe he's just saying, you know what, you were grounded in truth, but right now you're kind of hanging loose. Right? Either way, Jesus points to this deeper reality, whether it's her actual lifestyle or her teaching basis, and says, woman, you, you've You've got to get refocused, right? I can give you the living water, but the living water isn't just about praying a prayer, doing a thing. It's about allowing the truth to flow through you on a daily, regular basis, right? Same reality we want to lean into with God's people. Now again, 
She's just recognized what Jesus said to her. Is she now changing the subject? She says, I can see that you're a prophet. In other words, you're right. That's true of me. This is my story. You're telling me my story. So he says, okay, now our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So if I come to you and I say to you, you know what? You really got to work on, on, on your relationships. There's something broken going on in your life. And you say, you know what? It's a beautiful day outside. We should go for a walk. If you're not saying that so that we can talk about your relationships, you're changing the subject, right? You're avoiding it. Anybody here not a master of doing that, right? That's what we all want to do when there's a tough conversation. And it seems like maybe she's doing that here. And if she's all ashamed of her history and her story, that may be what she's doing. But what if? What if she's actually a more high-standing citizen in the Samaritan world than we've ever given her credit for historically? There's actually archaeological research. There were lots of Samaritan priestesses, if you will, female leaders in the religious area. Right? And the fact that she knows the answer to all Jesus' questions, that she's well aware of the teachings of, of their book, right? that in a minute she's going to go back to her people and they're going to believe her on her own witness all by herself. Right? So if somebody you have no respect for because their life is messy and their situation is poor comes to you and says something totally amazing happened that you wouldn't believe, what's your response? Yeah, I have to see that for myself. When we go through the story, what happens? The people believed just because of her testimony all by herself. What if she's not this horrible Samaritan woman who couldn't keep a husband, but that she's somebody who may have lost her way religiously, but in her community had all kinds of standing that people followed her? What if Jesus intentionally went to the well of Jacob, which has all this historical power, to a person of power and standing, this Samaritan woman, just so that he could let people know, all kinds of people know, with authority, that he was who he said he was. I'll let you think about that one. It's probably a little different way of looking at it. So she asked him about worship. We're not going to get into all the details of worship, but Jesus just points to one deeper truth. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. That's the answer to every worship war, by the way, right? The only thing that really matters in the end, however we figure out how to do worship, which is always an ongoing, challenging conversation, is are you presenting your heart and are you allowing God's spirit to shape that? That's the essence of worship. That's what we're all about here. That's what Jesus points to in this situation as well. I'll just pass on that one for today. And then he goes with what she knows. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, right? Again, this woman knows exactly the story, how it's supposed to unfold. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And she's going, Jesus just did that. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Jesus takes this opportunity of this powerful place, this powerful moment, this powerful woman, in my opinion, right? And says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. Do you know what Jesus did often, especially in the other three Gospels it's recorded? When people started to say, I think you're the Messiah, he said, don't tell anybody. But here he is in Samaria with the enemy, if you will, of his people saying, yep, 
I'm exactly the one you're looking for. I'm going to plant that seed here, and I'm going to encourage you to know this and share this and move on with this powerful truth. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Her testimony carried that power. So, there's lots to think about in this story. I want to encourage you to go and actually read the whole thing on your own and to dig into that. But I'm going to land now in, here's some things you can pick up for the, from the way Jesus did hospitality, the way Jesus engaged, that you can practice as well. First, go toward. Go toward. Not every day, not all the time, not every situation. You don't have to exhaust yourself, just like we did with prayer. When you sense it's your conversation to have, make sure you enter in. Dare to trust that God's prompting is something that you need to follow on occasion to say, I need to enter this conversation. I need to go towards it, not run away. And then engage, right? Ask questions, wonder, get in deep, do what Jesus did in that conversation. And then this, find the deeper common ground. This woman wanted to say what all the differences were between her and Jesus, and Jesus kept coming back to this. But there's this greater truth. There's this living water. There's this word that stands above both of us about the living water and pointing to that. No matter what your difference is with another person, you have something in common with them. You are a person in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. Try and land in that area, that connection. And then be open to revelation. If you talk to a neighbor, if you talk to a co-worker, if you talk to somebody who hasn't already committed to following Jesus, do you see them as someone lesser than you that you need to teach things to? Or do you need to see them as somebody that Jesus loves already? And they might also be able to teach you something. Do you see that humility that Christ calls us to where we go in open to the fact that even somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus or bow to Jesus can teach us something about how this world works? Are you open to that revelation? God can use all kinds of people to teach us. And then finally, talk about it. Share these stories. Talk amongst each other about how you've experienced this and encourage one another to keep going on this journey. Let's pray. So Jesus, as we see you at work and in relationship, we pray that we may marvel and be amazed at your truth, at your ability, that we may be surprised at some of the things that you do, that most of all, we can continue to ask that you would come and lead us in the conversations that we need to have as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you found a way to make yourself known to the Samaritan woman and her whole community. We thank you that you've made yourself known to us and our whole community. And we pray that as we carry on on this journey, you continue to inspire us to make you known to others along the way. Give us wisdom, give us boldness, and guide us by your spirit, we pray in your holy